this morning. Okay, we are beginning this week the book of Exodus, the second of the book of the five books of the Torah. And this book is referred to by um, the Rishonim as the Sefer of Geula, the book of redemption, and hence the name Exodus. See, every book in the Torah has a, a name that it's referred to, um, that it was re used to be referred to, which is often the translation into Latin or Greek came from what it was called, which was in this case, the book of, of the Exodus. But it's also referred to perhaps, I believe more anciently by the title of the first Parsha, which is Shamos. Shamos means names, the book of names. And I want to talk about the significance of why this book is called the book of names, because this week's Parsha is the first Parsha of the of Exodus, which is called Shamos. Shamos means names. And so the whole book is called after that first book, the first Parsha, which is the book of names. What's the significance of names? Why is this book of Exodus called names? And what's exciting is that we are going to talk about a mitzvah tonight. I found a way to squeeze in a mitzvah. And the mitzvah we're going to talk about is the is what's called Berchas HaTorah, which is the blessing on, on learning Torah. Did you know that there's a blessing you're supposed to say before learning Torah? Anyone? There's a blessing that you're supposed to say on learning Torah. Now, let me ask you another question. Does anybody know if blessings are biblical or rabbinic? Does the... Wow, that's very good. You have a good husband. You should always listen to him. That's very good. So yes, um, that's a good that's a good uh, a good advantage of having a husband. They can answer questions while walking through the back of the room. Um, so yes, blessings are rabbinic. Does anyone else have another opinion? Are blessings rabbinic or are they biblical? Okay, yeah, the Torah says that, that the Torah says you'll be blessed. Okay, the Shema is the Shema is not a blessing though. When I say a blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem, Lahad Lichner Shel Shabbat, Hamotzi Lechem in Haaretz. So the answer is is that you're both right. Blessings are both rabbinic and biblical. Most blessings, the vast majority of blessings, 98% of blessings are rabbinic. Blessings on eating food are rabbinic, on going to the bathroom, when you wake up in the morning on, on your body, um, blessings on rain and on different occurrences. It's all rabbinic. So we... We hold ourselves stronger to rabbinical things than biblical things in certain ways because they're because of the fact that they're rabbinic in nature, we give it more weight 
so that a person shouldn't come to disrespect them because they're very important. So we, we, we hold rabbinic mitzvahs in a very high esteem. But there are two, the difference really only between a rabbinic commandment and a, and a biblical commandment. Does anyone know the difference? If you have a bracha that's rabbinic versus a bracha that's, that's, um, that's biblical, do you know the difference, the practical difference it would make? Is if, if you're unsure if you did it. Let me explain. First of all, um, the two biblical mitzvahs are berchas hamazon, the blessing after the meal. It says in the Torah, Vachalta Vasavata Uvarakta. You should eat and be satisfied and bless God. And thank God. So that's biblical. And the other one is Berchasa Torah. The blessing on learning Torah is also considered to be biblical, according to most opinions. And the difference, the practical difference it makes if it's rabbinic or biblical is if you are unsure if you did it. If you're not sure you made a blessing that's rabbinic, you're not sure, so you do not make another blessing. You just don't do it at that point if you're unsure. But a biblical mitzvah, if you're unsure, you have to do it again. So that's essentially the difference. But we're going to learn a little bit <clears throat> about this blessing. I just, an amazing idea that I heard today in this blessing. No. Great question. The blessing is made once a day, preferably in the morning, and uh, and it carries throughout the entire day. So every day there's an... Yes. If you didn't make it in the morning, if you didn't make it in the morning, then before going to listen to a class or whatever, you should you could say it. And so, um, okay. So let's talk about names. So the questions that I want to talk about. So this is very interesting. Sorry. So this book, <clears throat> what I was saying is as follows. It's I fit in a mitzvah into this week's parsha, but it's it's forced. Because again, the past whole book of Genesis had very few mitzvahs. And the book of Exodus is when we begin the real Torah. According to one opinion, the Torah really should have started in two weeks from now, where we give the first mitzvah to the Jewish people. So from now on, in two weeks from now, the Torah is full of mitzvahs. But up until now, it was really the story of the history of the Jewish people. And it wasn't directly the commandments from God. Uh, in the same sense. So it's exciting because in a sense, this book is when we get into the real meat and potatoes of what Torah is all about, which is commandments. And we've talked about the significance of commandments in the past. But this book, I want to really begin to frame it. What is this book all about? What is this book of Exodus and names, redemption? What's it really all about? What's at the root of it? What's the message that we're supposed to learn throughout this entire book? And I want to bring out a message that starts from the beginning and ends at the end of this book, which we'll be reading uh, several months from now. So, names. The book starts with, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt with Yaakov. And it goes through the names of all of Yaakov's sons, and it concludes that there were 70 souls that went down into Egypt, as we've discussed in the past. And in fact, all those names were listed previously. So that's the first names mentioned in this Parsha. 
Let's go through to some of the other names. We then have the two Jewish midwives who the Talmud tells us was none other than Yocheved, Moshe's mother, and Miriam, Moshe's sister, who were these midwives who were able to help the Jewish women give birth. And despite the decree that Paro made that Jew, the Jewish women were supposed to throw their male children into the Nile River, they found a way to keep these children alive. And so the Torah tells us that their names were Shifra and Pua. And we, Rashi explains to us that they were called Shifra and Pua because Shifra comes from the word L'shaper, which means to make beautiful, because one of them used to clean up the babies and make them look very nice. And the other one was called Pua because she used to get the babies to stop crying by saying Pua, Pua, Pua. So it's just an interesting um, introduction to the idea of names that we see that these names have some sort of significance. Now the next name that has significance is none other than Moses. Moshe is born, and as we all know the story, his mother hides him as long as she can, and then she finally, after three months, puts him in a reed basket and brings him down to the Nile River. His sister Miriam follows behind to see what will happen. And the daughter of Paro, his name was Basia, finds him and brings him in and has him and basically adopts him and raises him. And she has, she realizes that it's a Jewish baby. And she goes and tells Miriam to go fetch a wet nurse, a nursing Jewish mother to, to nurse this baby. So, of course, Miriam runs and gets her mother, Moshe's mother, to nurse the baby. So Moshe is essentially nursed by his own mother, but raised in the palace of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh. And so what does Basia name Moshe? Ah, yes, she names him Moshe. So Moshe is actually his Egyptian name. It's not his Hebrew name. Moshe has a different Hebrew name. So... She names him Moshe because she says, for I drew him from the water. And it says, ki min hamayim, because from the water, mishisihu, I drew him out. Now, I just heard today a very interesting idea about this name of Moshe. I forgot to finish reading it. One second. Um, so it says here, very interesting. There are those that point out that the the name of Moshe is a little bit it's a little bit grammatically incorrect. It says from the water Mishisihu. So really his name should be Misha, a good Russian name. His name should be Misha. Why is his name Moshe? Moshe, I believe, denotes more um I think it says based on this teaching that I'm looking at right now from the Sfarno um, that it sounds like more perhaps causative or futuristic that he will draw out, that he has the power to pull others out of the water. So again, we see an interesting thing that names have the power 
to bring something out of a person. They somehow denote a quality of the person. Now, so that's a great question. So I believe one of the explanations, and I don't know if there are others, is that his real name was Tuvia, which means good, good one, good one of God. Um, but I don't know if there are other explanations. Um, or it could be, I saw also another explanation that Moshe actually was his Hebrew name and that his his Egyptian name was um, like Musaya, Musa, Musa or something like that. Something similar, like maybe like the way the Arab, Arabs refer to him, Musa. Okay, so Moshe grows up and one day he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew man. And Moshe, it says, looked this way and that way, and he saw no man was there, and he struck the Egyptian and killed him and hit him in the sand. So this story eventually comes out, and Moshe has to run for his life. Paro wants to kill him. He feels, I guess, that he's starting a rebellion or that he's trying to seize power or free the Jews or whatever it is, and Moshe runs away to Midian. But what's interesting about this story about Moshe killing this Egyptian man is the commentary that Rashi brings. Rashi says he looked this way and that way. It says he looked into this man's future to see if anyone great would come out of this man. And he saw that there was no one in the future that was meant to come out of him that would, that would be a great person. And therefore... He determined that it was okay and justified to kill this person in self-defense. How did he kill this man in self-defense? How did he kill this man? So Rashi tells us that he used something called the shame Hamaforish, the explicit name of God. That Moshe said a certain name of God, which caused this man to die. So again, we find the idea of names, the name of God this time. What does that mean, that he used the name of God to kill someone? And we do find many, many times in different Torah sources that using a name of God gives you the ability to perform certain supernatural acts. In this case, it was to kill someone. Others use it to change destiny. To uh, The Talmud talks about using the name of God to uh, to elevate oneself up into spiritual realms to find out certain information. So significance of the name of God, and we're going to talk more about that in a moment. So then, then Moshe <coughs> runs to Midian, and he meets a man named Yisro, who is the priest of Midian, and ends up marrying Yisro's daughter, Zipporah. And it's interesting because Rashi also tells us that Yisro ha himself had seven names. Again, significance of a person having many names. And now finally, the most important part of this story <clears throat> is that Moshe meets God in the desert, <clears throat> in the burning bush. He's, he's watching his flock in the desert and he sees a burning bush and God speaks to him 
And do you know what Moshe's question is when God says you should go down and free the Jews? Do you know what Moshe asks him? He well, he doesn't exactly say why me. He says he says it shouldn't be me. I'm a I'm a a person of I'm a person of a, I have a speech impediment. I'm got not a good speaker, right? But God says this is holy land. Remove your shoes. I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Yaakov. And Moshe hides his face and he says, I will bring you out of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. And now go to go to Paro and say, let my people go. And what does Moshe say? What is your name? Who should I tell them that your name is? What should I say your name is? <laughs> and we're going to look at this episode in a little more depth in a moment. And finally, the last place we have names in this Parsha is that Moshe goes down to Egypt and the Jewish people accept him as the Redeemer. And he goes to Paro and he says, let my people go. And Paro says, no. But what's the first thing Paro says? Paro says, who is God that I should listen to his name? I don't know, Hashem. Who is this God? I don't know this God. And again, the name of God is, is in question. So, who is this God? <laughs> All right. So let's try to open up the story by looking a little deeper into... Um, into this encounter between Moshe and God at the burning bush. So Moshe says to Hashem, um, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, the God of your father sent me to you, and they say, what is his name? How should I respond? And Hashem, and Hashem says to him, Echia, um, Hashem said to Moshe, I will be what I will be. Tell them to the children of Israel, I will be sent me to you. Very interesting. That's the name of God. What's the significance of that? What does it mean? I will be that I will be. I will be what I will be. I will be that I will be. What does it mean? I will be what I will be. So Rashi says simply, I will be with you in this suffering, just as I've been in you, with you in previous sufferings, and I will be with you in future sufferings. So something about the continuity, that I will always be with you. But then comes a very interesting twist. The very next verse, Moshe says, so God says, you should tell them that I will be sent you, Echia. And then God says to, also to Moshe, so say to the children of Israel, Echia, Shalach, Echia sent you, 
And the Omer owed, and Hashem said again, owed further Elohim, El Moshe. Elohim said to Moshe further, Ko Somer, this is what you should say to the children of Israel, Hashem, Yud Vavche, Elokei Avoseichem, the God of your forefathers, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, the God of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Shalach Nialechem. Hashem, Yud Vavche, sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my remembrance for every generation. So now I have a problem. Moshe says, let's recount the, the conversation. Moshe says, God, what should I tell them your name is when I go to Egypt? Now, again, the question is, why does he care what your name is? And God says, I will be. I will be what I will be. And then, and then God says, and you should tell them Echia sent you. That I will be sent you, and then he says, and my and tell them furthermore, and furthermore, God says, tell them that Hashem Yudhevavhe, the God of their forefathers, sent you. This is my name forever. This is my remembrance for every generation. So which is it? Which is the name? So I believe the answer is as follows, <clears throat> and because this is a fresh, hot-off-the-presses idea for today. I didn't get a chance to look at all the different sources that discuss this, but I certainly will by next year. Um, I'll spend time on Shabbos looking around into this, this idea to try to get more information. But I believe the answer is as follows. When Moshe says, "What? who should I tell them sent you? He's really asking a very specific question. Not what's God's name. That's not what he means. What is a name? Moses Shakespeare, not Moses. Shakespeare asked, what's in a name? What is the significance of a name? So let me ask you, when we say that God has a name, so really God has many names. There are 10 different names for God, or at least seven, seven to 10 different names for God in the Torah. What is the significance of a name? What is a name? Do we need a name? Is a name essential? Why? What does a name do? So so we have spoken we have spoken about in the past how your name represents your mission. And we've alluded to that a little bit here that Moshe's name he can means he has the power power to draw out to rescue Shifra and Pua have the, the ability to beautify and, and comfort these babies, right? So there is a significance to the idea of a name. But essentially, who is a name for? Is it for you? Ah, a name is for others. A name is really for other people. A name allows and enables others to relate to you. When we, the idea of a name in the Torah, when we talk about God having many names, it's essentially the way that we also have many names. What do I mean that we have many names? So as far as I know, most of you only were born with one. But then again, Maybe that's not the case because there's probably something that your mother calls you 
or that your grandmother calls you and maybe your husband calls you or your boyfriend calls you something else. And maybe your boss calls you a different name. Essentially, if you think about me, so I have multiple names. My names are the different hats that I wear throughout the day. It's the hat I wear when I'm being a father, the hat I wear where I'm being a husband, the hat I wear where I'm being a rabbi, and I wear when I'm being a therapist, the hat I wear when I'm being a son. These are all different roles that I play. And essentially, each of those has its own name. A name represents a mode of being, a way of relating. Your name is kind of like your title. It helps people understand how to refer to you, how to connect to you, to understand what your job description is, so to speak. So the name does represent your mission. But on a simpler level, it represents your role, the role that you're playing. When we say that God has many names, each of these names relate to different ways that God reveals himself to us. Essentially, the 10 different names of God relate to the 10 different spheros, which are 10 different um, energies with which God relates to the world either through the hat of kindness, through the hat of strength, through the hat of harmony, through the hat of, um, of power, through the hat of humility, through the hat of connection, through the hat of kingship or revelation. So essentially, there are these 10 different energies in Kabbalah and they represent the modes in which God relates to the world. God himself doesn't have parts. God himself, in his essence, is beyond these qualities. But he puts on these different hats in order for us to have a relationship with him. So the names of God relate to different ways that God is manifesting himself in the world. So the question that the Jewish people were asking Moshe is when Moshe, no, when Moshe says, what should I tell the Jewish people when they ask me what your name is? He's saying, what, with what character trait, with what attribute are you redeeming them? Is it out of compassion? Is it out of justice? Is it out of something else? What, with what, with what energy have they merited to be saved? That's really the question. So the name Echia relates to one of the names of God, which is actually the highest name of God, the most sublime, which re relates to the idea of something in Kabbalah called Kesser, which is the crown. But not for now to go into all the details of that. And it's perhaps beyond my scope, unless I was a lot more prepared. But suffice it to say that he's telling you this is the attribute that God's going to be using when he redeems the Jewish people. And then God says, what's my real name? Tell them yud Hey vav Hey, my name. And then... Listen to this. So he says, you tell them that Hashem, the name, yud ke vav ke, which we've discussed in the past, is really an acronym for the three Hebrew words. Does anyone remember what those are? Haya, hove, viya. Haya means what was, hove means what is, and yiya means what will be. The name yud he vav he is essentially a composite of the three verbs, what was, what is, what will be. 
And if you put those together, are those verbs or are they nouns? What was? Nouns, right? If you put those together, you get Yudhevavte. So essentially, the name for God is closest to a verb, which means existence. Timeless existence. The source of all existence. And then he says, This is my name forever. And Rashi points out that the word Li'olam is missing the letter Vav. It's missing a letter. And which means that it appears like the word which means mute. You're not supposed to read this. Um, you are not supposed to um, pronounce this name. Uh, sorry. There, in the Torah, there are certain places, we talked about this a little bit last week, and we're going to talk about it in more depth in a minute, that there are certain places in the Torah where certain letters are not certain. There are certain words are read a certain way, but we have a tradition that they're written a different. They're written a different way than they're pronounced. We mentioned last week there are certain letters that are bigger, certain letters that are smaller. There are certain spaces in the words, that, and every single letter word has to be spelled exact in order for a Torah scroll to be kosher. If one letter is missing, even if it's a letter that doesn't change the pronunciation or this. Or, or the meaning of the word, the Torah scroll is not kosher. And we mentioned that throughout history, there's only about four or five different letters that have ever been found in different various Torah scrolls. And that doesn't put ours into suspect. We have a tradition that this is a kosher Torah scroll. But the point is, is that every single letter matters. And one of the questions that I want to address in a moment is why? Why is it so significant, every letter? But this is an example of a word that's read li'olam, as if there's a vav there, but there's no vav. The vav does not appear in the Torah. So it looks like the word, it looks like the word li'ilam, which means mute or silent. And Rashi says, let me see if they quote it here. So, this teaches that God's name should always be hidden and not read as it is written. The word le'olam is written missing the letter vav, which looks like it means hidden or mute. And that means that God's name is, should always be hidden and not read. It should not be pronounced. The name yod vav is not pronounced. The only time it was pronounced was in the Holy of Holies inside the temple in the Kodesh Kedashim on Yom Kippur by the high priest. So God then taught Moshe how it should be pronounced. The next verse, the next words say, and this is my remembrance in every generation. So the name that you're going to bring to, that I'm, that I'm re my real name is yud heh vav -Hey, but that name is not pronounced. And the name that you should pronounce instead is the name Adonai, which is what we say when we make a blessing. So what's the significance here? So we have a lot of stuff we have to understand. And I just noticed right here that the Sfarno, who I was looking at previously in, um, in Moshe's name, says the names of a person refer to the specific qualities that he possesses. These qualities cause the person to act in a particular manner. Therefore, Moshe was concerned that Jewish people would ask, with what attribute 
is God coming to redeem the Jewish people? So that's exactly the way that we ex explained it. So what does this mean for us? What's the significance that God's name is not pronounced? <clears throat> so as we said, yud hey vav hey denotes absolute existence. And the Zohar explains that in the letters yud hey vav hey is expressed all of these 10 attributes. It's essentially the name of essence. It's the name not of God's essential essence, but of the essence of all of the attributes that God uses to express himself. So in that name is, is described, the Yud represents the first of these energies, which is called Chachma, wisdom. The point, there's a little thorn at the top of the Yud, represents crown, the crown that we talked about, Kesser. The He represents Bina, which is the attribute of um, cognition. The Vav represents the six emotions, chesed, kindness, gevura, strength, teferis, harmony, um, netzach, am I putting you to sleep? Netzach, um, <laughs> which is dominance, or uh, hod, submission, yesod, um, which is connection. And then the final He of God's name represents malchus, which is God's expression in the world. So, kingship. So the yud heh vav is God's essential name, which represents all the ways that he can express himself, that he chooses to express himself with in this world. Why is that name not pronounced? Because we do not have the ability to understand God in his totality. We understand that he has, and we can maybe understand one mode of expression. We can never understand his essence, his full ability of expression. But the word that we say, Ado, Adnus, the name when you make a blessing, is referring to the lowest dimension of expression, which is Malthus, kingship, which refers to God's revelation in this world. So all names essentially have to do with revelation. How does God reveal himself to us? The lowest level is what's called Malchus kingship. And I want to explain that to you very briefly. And then I want to try to tie all this together. It says in um, many times, actually, we say, In that day, God's name, uh, God and his name will be one. What does that mean that God and his name will be one? Is God and his name not one now? So, the, the 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 meaning of the 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 term the meaning of the term melech the meaning of the term melech malchus God's kingship is this is a the same idea as God's name please close the door that God's there's two things and I'll give you a metaphor I'm sorry I'm all over the place tonight this is hard stuff um, and I have kids that keep coming in here. Um, the name, the idea is, take, think about um, Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or, 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 or Zuckerberg or any CEO of a company. That's God. God is the CEO of the world. He has a vision for the way the world should be. He wants his company. What is the, what is, 
what does Bill Gates want from his company? Or the, the guy that owns Apple? Who owns Apple? I don't know. Or or, or the or, Okay, or the guy that owns Amazon. Right? I'm not good with these names. I do know Elon Musk, the guy that owns Tesla. What do they want from their company? What's what's they want profit, but I think they want more. I think that these guys are visionaries. These guys are really visionaries. I'll tell you a story, a kind of tragic story I heard this week. A friend of mine, someone that I learned with um, recently, about a couple of years ago, started a company, his own company. And he got an investor for like $100 million to invest in his company. And he hired a 1,000 employees all over the world. And the company was exploding and it was doing incredible, bringing in a hundred million dollars in revenue each year, not profit yet, but in revenue, amazing, amazing success story. And he recently bought his competitor. And so now his company doubled in size. And along with the competitor came the CEO of the, the other company who he now made his president. And the CEO was a nasty guy. And he was very upset about having been bought and he wanted to be in charge. And he started to spread rumors about this, this, the CEO of the company. And he got involved with the board of investors and he turned them against him and they fired him. His own company was, he was fired by his, the, the people that he brought in to invest in the, in the company. It's very, such a tragic story. Yeah. Yeah. A horrible story. So, and one of the things that he took pride in is that his company was run with honesty and integrity because that's what he valued. So, one of the things that he did is he, putting politics aside, he felt that the right thing to do was to have everyone get vaccinated in the in the company. So he had everyone get vaccinated, and the first thing this new guy did when he took over was he stopped that plan of vaccination, and a few days after that, someone died of COVID in the company. So he said, he said, more than getting fired, what's bothering me is that I had the chance to help people and do good and look what's come out of this already. And he made an effort that anyone that was going through hardship in the company, he made sure to help them. And, and people were like, literally the hundreds of people were writing to him saying, you know, we feel terrible. You were, you made us feel so safe here. We felt so wanted. It's an amazing thing. That's the job of an, a CEO. The job of a CEO is that their company should be a manifestation of their values, of who they are. That's what a real CEO wants. They not just to make profit, they want vision. They want to pass down their message to the lowest level that the company should essentially become an organism, right? When all the cells are working in perfect harmony, then you have an amazing company. When every aspect of your body is working towards the benefit of your body, you have an amazing organism. That's the goal of a company. What do you call it if the cells of the organism are not working for the benefit of the organism? What is that, what is that called? When the cells, yeah, what, specifically what disease is it when the cells start rebelling against its own body? Cancer. Right, a cancer is when the cells start trying to dominate and do have their own will, as opposed to serving the will of the master. So the idea of this world is Hashem wants to create the perfect company. 
in which every part, every player of this universe is under one mission, working together to reveal God's plan on earth. So when we refer to the name, that's the revelation. That's how the, the mission statement is revealed in the pieces of this world, in the parts of this world. So when God says, when we say that in the, in, in the, when Mashiach comes in the end of time, God's name and his essence will be one. The company will be a perfect representation and reflection of the vision of the CEO. That's the mission of Judaism. That we should be, that God should be revealed in the parts and the pieces, not in the unity and oneness of God Himself, but in the harmony of all the different pieces working together as one. That's the idea of God's kingdom: is that the entire universe will be working together. So when we, how do we get into this? <laughs> So there's a name of God, which is the totality. And then we say the name Adnas, which refers to the lowest level of, of revelation, which is called the Shekhinah, God's presence in the world. Because there's a presence of God in the world now, but we want to bring that presence out, that it will be revealed and not hidden. Right? You, you eat food, there's a spirituality in that food. There's a taste, there's, there's vitamins, there's nutrients, there's spirituality in everything in this world, but it's always hidden inside the shell of the physical. Our job is to bring that out into revelation. So how do we do that? The, the primary way of doing that is through the Torah. What is the Torah? So say the Kabbalists, the that comes to memory is the Ramban, Nachmanides, in the introduction to the Torah, says as following, as follows, that the Torah is not a book. The Torah is Shemus de Kudshabrihu. The Torah is the name of God. That's what the Torah is. The entire Torah from beginning to an end is names of God. What do I mean by that? Well, we just said name means the way that you relate and reveal yourself. The whole Torah is God's way of revealing himself to the world, but it's more than that. Literally, the whole Torah is a code. It's all a stream of consciousness code. That's why there are no vowels in the Torah. I mean, couldn't God have made it easier by putting vowels in there? What's with that? So the answer is, is there are no vowels because the letters of the Torah is a gigantic computer code, which is the name of God. And the, the spaces, the spaces between the letters are completely arbitrary and irrelevant. Had history worked itself out differently, the spaces would have combined differently and we would have been able to read different words. We can fill in the vowels. Of course, the vowels matter when we read the Torah. There's a, a set way to pronounce the words. But the main code is the letters, and those letters are, na are a name of God. So there's a, there's a, there's a, way, a, 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 a very interesting way that this comes out is that when the last, there's a question of who wrote the last eight verses in the Torah. The last eight verses of the Torah talk about Moses' death. 
and after. So who wrote the last eight verses? Did Moshe write the last eight verses or not? Did he write about his own death? So then it didn't happen yet. It's not true. So who wrote the last eight verses, Julia? So, uh, ah, Yoshua. So one explanation is that Yoshua wrote the last eight verses. And that Moshe wrote them. It says, another explanation is that Moshe wrote them Bedima. And that's translated as in tears. He wrote the last eight verses in tears. Well, I always thought it meant he was crying, so he himself couldn't read what he had, had written because he knew he was dying. But another explanation I just heard today is that he literally wrote the letters in with tears, with salt water, so that he traced the letters, and then Yoshua came after and filled it in with ink so that Moshe didn't really write it because it would be a lie. You can't write something that hasn't happened yet. You can't write, and Moses died because that wasn't true yet. <laughs> But another explanation says the Vilna Gon is Badima means, uh, or Meduma means uh, a mixture. And says the Vilna Gon that Moshe wrote the last eight verses of the Torah without spaces between the letters. And it could have been read completely differently. And then Yoshua came later and put in the spaces. So the Vilna Gon explains that that's really the way the entire Torah existed before it came into this world was just a stream of letters. And those letters spelled out the massive million letter name of God or 600,000 letter name of God. And then those letters became broken down into words when it came into this world in accordance with the way the stories took place in history. So the Torah is a name of God. And that's why every single letter in the Torah matters. Because if you change one letter, you're disrupting the entire code of the Torah. So there's a very interesting, I want to share with you a very interesting thing we say when we make the blessing on the Torah in the morning. So we talked about the blessing before learning Torah. So one of the lines in it says, may all my descendants and my descendants descendants Yodei Shemecha, know your name, Belomdei Sorasecha Lishma, and learn your Torah Lishma. Which means, may all of my descendants know your name, God. May, may my descendants recognize that the Torah is a name. It's a divine name. And may they learn your Torah Lishma. What does it mean to learn the Torah Lishma? The word Lishma means, is translated as for its sake. When you do something lishma, it means you do it for the right reason. You do it for the not for the sake of my own honor or because I'm gonna get become famous, but no, I'm doing it because I want to do the mitzvah for God's sake. And it happens to be that there's a debate amongst the the early Hasidim and the anti-Hasidim in the 1700s in Europe when the Hasidic movement started. So there were many who came out against the Baal Shem Tov and his students. And the first and foremost uh, of that, those was the Vilna Gon, the, who we just mentioned, actually. He was a great Kabbalist from Vilna, Lithuania, who was anti the Hasidic movement. He felt that the Hasidic movement was bordering on pantheism. The idea of that God is everywhere is very close to saying that everything is God. And he was afraid that the Hasidim were, were basically taking Judaism away from Judaism, becoming another religion. No. The Vilna Gaon was against, Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement. And 
one of, there were many debates amongst the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. Well, not many, maybe not many, a few. Some say that uh, the primary debates had to do with whether or not God is really everywhere or if there's a space without God. And that's a whole philosophical discussion. And there are those that claim that really that, that wasn't a debate. It was never debated. It was a misunderstanding. Um, there were a few other things, details. One of them, I believe, was the idea of what it means to learn Torah lishma. What does it mean to learn Torah for its own sake? So the follower of the Vilna Gaon, Rav Chaim Velazhner, writes in his book, Nefesh Chaim that the primary meaning of learning Torah for its own sake means to find out, just to understand the Torah. That learning Torah, the Torah itself is so beyond that you don't have to think about anything special when you learn Torah. You just have to really try to focus on understanding what the Torah says. That's what it means to learn Torah for its own sake. Says the Tanya and uh, the Chabad Hasidus and other early Hasidic texts say, no, Lishma means as it says. What does Lishma mean? It means not for its own sake. It means for its name. Shame. We said Hashem. Lishma means learning Torah to connect to Hashem. When you learn Torah, you have to have in mind that this is the primary mode of getting close to God. It's not enough to do mitzvahs. You have to want to connect to God through mitzvahs. It's not enough to learn Torah, to understand what the Torah says. You have to recognize that the Torah is a tool, not just to learn it. It's a tool to connecting to God. That's what the Hasidim said. But now I think we can understand something amazing, that maybe there was no debate. Because the Nefesh Achayim, the, the Vilna Gons followers say that learning Torah is about just understanding what it says. The Hasidim say it means, no, Lishma means to connect to God for the sake of God, for the name of God. But now we just learned that the whole Torah is really a name of God. So if you're learning the Torah for to understand what the Torah is saying, really you're also learning the name of God. So perhaps there's no debate at all. So, so now, with this we can also understand another very interesting point, which is the Talmud says the source for making a blessing on the Torah is from a verse that says, um, that says, on second, Kishem Hashem Ekra, when I call out the name of God, Havu give greatness to God. That when I call out God's name, you should, you should um, bless his name, essentially. So before reading Torah, you have to make a blessing. But the verse says, when I read the name of God, I have to make a blessing. Not So when you before saying God's name, you have to make a blessing. What about the rest of the Torah? The answer is, no, the whole Torah is God's name. It's a very, very, very beautiful answer. So, so lastly, we'll mention that the Zohar says that in, in Egypt, when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt, the power of speech was in exile. Perhaps now we can understand better what this means. What's the power of speech? Speech, again, is the ability to express that which is hidden within. It's the same idea as a name. What a name is to you, speech is to me. Your name allows me to relate to you and connect to you and call you. So my speech gives you the ability to understand what I, what's going on inside me. 
it's your name is your handle essentially it's your 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 url it's your address and your speech is your web content it's your ability to share something with the world so in egypt god's presence was hidden and as we left egypt we brought out with us the beginning of a journey to reveal god in the world to bring out speech into actualization what we can then relate to the other that hashem's name can truly be one that the company the mission statement of the jewish people which began 3333 years ago in egypt at mount sinai when we left egypt and stood at mount sinai was that we were god's pr company our job is to put together the most amazing company in human history. A company that would be the perfect manifestation of the mission statement of the CEO. And that is the ultimate mission of the Jewish people is that God's name will be truly revealed amongst the entire world. The book of Shamos ends. And in this book, which we call the book of names, where we talked about all these different names is where we receive the Torah, which is the name of God. And at the end of this book, the book ends where, where we finish building the tabernacle, the sanctuary in the desert. And it says the very last line of this book is that God's presence rested on the tabernacle, on the Mishkan. And that is the message of this book is that our job is to bring god down to earth to reveal god on earth that's the final redemption not just the coming out of egypt but the bringing that essence of god out into tangible tangibility and the mishkan the sanctuary the tabernacle was made up of many different pieces just like this world that came together as one and we see that refrain again and again take all the pieces and make them like one that they should reveal God. And that's our job in this world, is to take the parts, to create harmony, to reveal the oneness of God on earth. That is our mission. And that's what it means that on that day, God's name and his essence will be one. And we are the lucky few who have that mission statement of building that company. So we should all be blessed to connect to the true revelation that exists in every moment and to be those spokespeople for God in this world. Thank you for listening and I apologize if it was a little complicated. <laughs>